Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. I hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Galatians chapter 4. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is continuing to discuss the role of the law relative to the believer. In chapter 3, he argued convincingly that people are saved by faith in the person and work of Christ. Even in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. Their faith was a forward-looking faith, whereas our faith is a backward-looking faith. But Old Testament and New, people are saved by believing in the promises of God with respect to the seed of Abraham. That's how God said that the blessings of heaven would be poured out into this world. He willed them, as it were, to the seed of Abraham. And they are shared now generously and co-equally with all people who have faith in Christ, be they Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, or free. Thanks be to God. So why then the law? That was the question Paul was asking and answering at the end of chapter 3. If we aren't saved by it, then why do we need it? What role does it play in our lives? Well, Paul says, it's like a schoolmaster. It restrains us and disciplines us and teaches us until the day when we are ready to receive our inheritance through faith and begin functioning as the mature and spirit-filled children of God. Now, in chapter 4, Paul continues to develop that metaphor. We begin reading at verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So let's just pause here. That's an unusual expression. The Greek phrase used can refer to the alphabet. So scholars like R. Alan Cole suggest that Paul is referring here to the elementary stages of religious experience, whether Jewish or Gentile, through which the Galatians have gone in the past, but which are now all alike equally outdated by Christ. Closed quote. The the Jewish religion, with its sacrifices and purity codes and ceremonies, was intended to teach the alphabet of faith, you might say. It was preparatory. It meant to teach the basic truths about the holiness of God, the contagious nature of sin, and the necessity of atonement. Having done those things, God, our Father, intends for it to give way to Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul says that in the fullness of time, 
after the Jewish people had been disciplined and instructed and prepared by the law at the right time, God sent forth his son who was born of a woman and who lived under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He kept the law and he paid for what we had done in his body on the cross. He did this to make us sons and heirs. He did this to change our status before God. And what a change it was. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that before Christ, we were strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 2 Corinthians 5.19. That is the gap that is covered by the gospel. Thanks be to God. If we are in Christ, we are no longer apart from God. We are no longer estranged from God. We are no longer alien to God. If we are in Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are brought back. We are brought in. We are brought home. That is a fact, Paul says. And it's important that you feel it. Therefore, Paul says, that when we are adopted, we are simultaneously filled with the Spirit of God and enabled by that Spirit to address God as Abba Father. Listen, friends, as an adoptive father myself, I understand what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here. I want my daughter to know that she is my daughter, but I also want her to feel like she is my daughter. I don't ever want her to doubt my love for her. And I so wish sometimes that I could put my spirit inside of her so that I could testify to her spirit that she is loved and accepted and adored by me. I can't do that. But thanks be to God, he can. He can and he does. He puts his spirit in Side us so that we can know and feel and believe that we belong. Hallelujah. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The argument in these verses is fairly straightforward. Here, Paul is reiterating the substance of his concern with the teaching of the Judaizers in Galatia. If all of what we've said is true, If you have received justification and the gift of the Holy Spirit through faith in the life and work of Jesus Christ, why would you turn back to the elementary rituals and principles of Judaism? Having graduated to maturity, having become a full adult member of the family of God, why would you now wish to re-enroll in kindergarten? If you think that makes any sense at all, then I 
worry, Paul says, that I have labored over you in vain. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This passage has been the source of a great deal of speculation concerning the health challenges endured by the Apostle Paul. Paul says that he first came to them because of some sort of illness that he was experiencing. And this has led many to assume that Paul had contracted malaria in the coastal lowlands and had then traveled up into the more elevated regions in order to recover. That may be. Others say that Paul may have had epilepsy, which would have given them every reason to despise and scorn him, as many people in that time believed it to be a sign of demonic oppression. Other people, based on verse 15, are certain that Paul had ophthalmia, a disease of the eyes. Unfortunately, the text doesn't supply the answer. But happily, it doesn't really matter. What we know is that Paul was sick and that the kindness that he experienced from these people established a special bond between he and they, a bond that had been subsequently threatened by the false teachings of the Judaizers. Paul is very eager to get things back now on a proper footing. Let's just notice that bad doctrine is the cause of much disunity and loss of relationship in the church. You can't maintain friendship in the gospel if you aren't believing in the same gospel. These people, these Judaizers, believe in faith plus works. You can't hold hands across that kind of divide. It will divide the church and it will render friendships asunder. So Paul says, put that away. Come back to your senses. Come back to your original faith. And let's resume our former friendship. It's a very interesting approach. And one we could likely learn a great deal from in our day and age. Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, like a good pastor, the Apostle Paul begins to buttress and support his basic argument through illustration. And there is no better source for illustrations than the narrative portions of the Old Testament. So he says, this is like the story of Sarah and Hagar. He actually says, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, most conservative evangelical folks like me are pretty comfortable with the idea of typology. 
Typology is the idea that the stories in the Old Testament serve to establish the general shapes and patterns that are then fulfilled in Christ. So, for example, the story of Noah's Ark is like our conversion, Peter says in 1 Peter 3. If we go into Christ through faith, like Noah and his family went into the ark through faith, then we will be saved from the wrath of God. That's typology. But most Protestants following Martin Luther are very nervous when it comes to allegory. Allegory is basically a more extreme version of typology. Typology says this is like that in a general way. Allegory says this has a hidden secondary or spiritual meaning that wouldn't naturally occur to the casual reader. And most Protestants get very nervous when people begin reading the Bible in this way. That was one of the main issues in the Protestant Reformation. Luther said that the Roman Catholics were generally not dealing in the primary common sense meaning of the biblical text. They were always talking about secret, hidden, spiritual meanings that often had absolutely nothing to do with the words, grammar, and context of the original text. So what in the world should we do with this particular text? Here, Paul is saying that the story of Sarah and Hagar may be understood allegorically. What would Luther think about that? Well, thankfully, Luther tells us what he thinks about that. He says here in his commentary, allegories do not strongly persuade in theology, but as certain pictures, they beautify and set out the matter. So basically he says, I don't like allegories as arguments, but I don't mind them as illustrations. Then he goes on to say that Paul, because he had fortified his cause before with invincible arguments taken from experience, from the example of Abraham, from the testimonies of the scripture, and from similitudes, now in the end of his disputations, he adds an allegory to give a beauty to all the rest, closed quote. So, don't make your case with an allegory. And don't even introduce an allegory, Luther says, unless you've already proven your argument with appeals to scripture, reason, and experience. Fair enough. The Apostle Paul explains now the meaning of his allegory in verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So Paul says, Isaac did not come through the slave woman. He was not born to Hagar. Hagar represented Abraham and Sarah's attempt to produce an heir through the flesh, right? There was, there was no word of command from God, no promise from God that, that Hagar would produce a child, just an attempt, a rather sordid attempt at that, to produce by effort what God had said would come 
by grace. Now, a child was produced in this way, Ishmael, but he was not the child of the promise. The child of promise came not by strenuous and questionable effort, but rather by faith and trust in the word and promises of God. That child, Isaac, became the child of promise. Similarly, Paul says, there are many people, many biological children of Abraham even, who try and earn the inheritance by strenuous human effort. They are outsiders and slaves with respect to the promises. The real children of Abraham, the people who inherit the blessings, are those who put their faith in the word and promises of God. Those are the people who live free. Those are the people who are called the children of God. Paul adds an extra detail here that we should also be careful to see. He says in verse 29, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. Paul says, the people trying to earn the inheritance will always resent and oppose those who think to inherit it by faith in the person and work of Christ. Tim Keller says here, religious people, in brackets, speaking of those who try to earn their salvation, are very nervous and touchy about their standing before God. Their insecurity makes them hostile to the gospel which insists that their best deeds are useless before God. One of the ways we know that our self-image is based on justification by Christ is that we are not hateful and hostile to people who differ from us. One of the ways we know that our self-image is based on justification by works is that we persecute. Closed quote. If we believe in salvation by grace through faith, then we will find ourselves kindly and gently disposed to other people. But if we are competing for the favor of God, then we will always be competing with other people. John Stott says here, The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael, closed quote. As always, what you believe will determine, to a great extent, how you behave. This is why the apostle is so invested and laboring here, so pastorally, to ensure that these people maintain their grip on the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Yeah.